wedding ring, that ding-a-ling was just a fling, bitch. Bling, bling, bitch, do my own thing, bitch. Fuck a wedding ring, that ding-a-ling was just a fling, bitch. Wake up, little bitches, let me show you how to live. Hair done, nails done, keep everything dead. Like Rihanna forehead, bitch, you gotta think big. Hello and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast. My name's Oliver Brady. And I'm Sarah Ifjecker, and we talk about how movies, TV, and books depict the medieval world uh, in both historical fiction and medieval-esque fantasy. And we talk about what they get right, what they get wrong, and what they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past. And as we know, and we've discussed now, and I think we've, this is like the 10th or 11th episode, Sarah gets very upset when people act like prima nocta wasn't a thing and people act like peasants weren't just getting stabbed at all points during the thing at all points during the medieval period sarah what other things do most people get wrong about the medieval well most people assume about the, about that the, uh, use noctis was a thing which it wasn't and also sometimes they get the latin wrong and think it was called prima nocta uh i believe it was prima nocta because as latin scholar and giant shit Mel Gibson told us <laughs> it is pretty much that. We should definitely rely on Mel Gibson's Latin skills. Uh, yeah, it's about the only skills we can rely on. Um, Sarah, why did you decide to do this podcast? I decided to do this podcast because I really like medieval history so much that I got a PhD in it. And I think the Middle Ages is cool. I teach medieval history. And uh, I find it interesting how people think about the medieval world and what things and uh, what things they tend to get wrong about it, what misconceptions they have. Um, why did you decide you wanted to do this podcast where I rant about my academic field with me? Well, I don't know, but every week that we do this podcast, I'm feeling like I don't like the medieval period enough because <laughs> I didn't go get a PhD and I don't change it. Um, I just like the, I love the time period, as you know, and uh, I love dudes getting stabbed with swords. So I'm always here for dudes to get stabbed with swords. Now, the movie we are doing this week, Sarah, it's called The Little Hours from uh, from 2017. Now, this movie, as far as I can remember, doesn't feature dudes getting stabbed with swords. It has a different kind of stabbing. <laughs> That's the sound of an exasperated co-host. Uh, the filth levels that Decker brought this podcast to at the very beginning. Uh, when we get to the end, this is the first time in the podcast history we're going to have a very different rating between the two of us for the for this movie because one of us loved it and one of us did not find this out when we get to the end yes just be prepared but one of us might have been offended this movie, well, I was, it's almost impossible to offend a good irish catholic it's also almost impossible to find one um but the most important thing is this is a a comedy i believe is how you describe it yes where people make the jokes there are not a lot of medieval comedies, but this is one of them. This is definitely the better of the two we've watched, Sarah. Yes, that is true. The other being, the other being stay tuned, everybody, for Robin Hood Men in Tights, a movie that does not hold up. Yeah, there are a lot of gay panic jokes. That's not... Uh, and a lot of racist jokes. Of yeah, there's, there's some issues. Sarah, who's in this movie? Um, basically, a lot of people who are in Parks and Rec... Or also have been on podcasts. Um, so Aubrey Plaza is in it as Sister Fernanda. Uh, Kate McCucci as Sister Ginevra. 
Um, and Alison Brie is our third nun, Sister Alessandra. Uh, baby James Franco, or I guess his name is technically Dave Franco, is the gardener Mazzetto. Um, who else? Uh, John C. Riley as Father Tommaso. Molly Shannon as Mother Maria. Uh, Fred Armisen has a great turn at the end as a bishop. Um, oh, and of course, Nick Offerman is in it and is amazing. He's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to oversell the Nick Offerman. This in he's, he just kind of, he's like a medieval dicky version of his Parks and Rec character. And everyone loves Ron Swanson. But this is like if Ron Swanson was an absolute asshole. Yeah, so he's he's evil and are and horrible. But he's definitely like a comedic villain to some extent. While also yeah, being a real villain. He, he is the bad guy. But he's, he's played for laughs. And it would genuinely be funny if... Oh, not even funny. Like if it was something like Shrek we were watching... They'd have him fall over a bunch of times. Right. But he's he's just a menacingly scary dude with his head up his own ass, basically. But we're going to get into the recap of the movie. Now, we say this every week, Sarah, but we definitely will try and keep it <laughs> shorter this time. We'll see how it goes. And we will have to see how it goes because I want everyone to realize that for a movie that some of us think is not particularly good and is kind of just forgotten about. Miss Decker here has That's Dr. Decker pages. by the way. Miss Miss Decker. Dr. Decker. Like nine, nine pages. I do not have nine pages. No, it's no. six pages. It's, it says nine on mine. Oh, right? yours must have gone weird. Mine says six. Nine pages, everybody, <sighs> of notes from from uh Miss Decker. Um <laughs> Doctor. I'm gonna correct you every time. Uh, guys, I have no problem with, with Dr. Decker correcting me. I just think it's assholes who would insist on still calling her that. And I still can't believe it's happening in 2018. But PSA, if well, any of my students are listening to this, it's Dr. If any of your students are listening to this, send help. She really enjoyed this movie. <laughs> it's a very accurate. <laughs> we'll get into it and we'll start with the recap. As ever, this will be sung by our Gregorian choir. <laughs> Innumeratio. <laughs> I get worse at this every time. Oh, no, I think you're getting anyway. better. I'm very looking forward to have, we're never going to have a jingle. Oh, we're definitely going to get a jingle there. I will find a way to get a jingle. But anyway, <laughs> more importantly, we open on the forest in Italy, near the convent of, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Decker to pronounce some of the words for this for me, because my Italian is, like most of my languages, not good. Garfagnana. Yes, I would have said Garfagnana, um, but... It's like lasagna. Lasagna, exactly, <laughs> perfect. It doesn't taste as nice, though. No. And it's 1347, and Sister Fernanda, played by uh, the lovely Aubrey Plaza, is leading a donkey back. Um, so she's just kind of walking with it. She's wearing her nunly clothes. Right? But as we'll find out, she's um, wearing the wrong nun clothes. She is wearing ooh. her winter habit when she should be in her no. summer habit. As a good Catholic, I spotted this straight away. Um, and then Kate Micucci, uh, played, playing Sister Geneva, um, comes up and says, what are you doing? What are you, why are you wandering around here with the wrong clothes on? And uh, that's when we get our first bit of knowing that this is not going to be your daddy's nun movie. Because Fernanda 
basically tells her to fuck off. Yeah, so we're definitely going with modern slang, which is, you know, a deliberate anachronism, so I'm fine with it. Um, I do want to note, however, that although there are some lovely medieval churches in Garfaniana that they must have used as filming locations, as far as I can tell, there is not a medieval convent. Ah, so when you said earlier that it is certainly accurate, it's clearly not. It, it doesn't get everything right, but I think it really gets a lot of things, you know, really, really right. Mm. So about your religion, we, stop. It is There's nothing right about it. <laughs> but what we do is we do get is uh, a little sense of the two characters. So we have Sister Fernanda. She's now I'm going to use a word to describe her, um, which is something that we would use in Ireland a lot to describe uh, people who are like Sister Fernanda. She's a massive bitch. And then Sister Geneva is kind of like a gossipy kind of person. Like, I think she's meant to be... Uh, right, she's played by Kate Micucci, so it's hard for her not to be cute and twee. But I think that's what she's meant to be, is seen as, like, yeah. not necessarily... Like, as in maybe not necessarily all there and a little bit... Like, she was put into the convent when she was 12 and has lived as a convent girl her entire life. Kind of. Right, she's very awkward. And Sister Fernanda... I mean, it's actually basically just um, April Ludgate, but a nun. Yes, so. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, God, I love April. But uh, they get met by a gardener, and the gardener says, hello, <laughs> very politely to the two sisters. And then they just start shouting at him. Don't fucking talk him. to us! <laughs> and it's, as, as Sarah's written down in the notes here, one of many extensive notes, um, she says that uh, it really sets the irreverent tone of the movie, and it definitely does. This it's it's a, I genuinely thought something had happened. Or we were going to find out something about this man. Nope. But turns out that no, there's nothing nothing there at all that would suggest that he was evil in any way. Right. So at this point, I actually do want to note. So this story is not an entirely made-up story. It is actually an adaptation of Giovanni Boccaccio's Decameron. And in the beginning of the Decameron, it actually does indicate that the nuns were pretty obnoxious to the gardener, though not quite this hostile. Wait, this is based on a true story. No, it's not a true story. Um, so it is a medieval book, um, which is basically a the the concept is essentially that it's the plague and all of these people are running away from the plague and hiding out in a castle um, away from the city of Florence because it's ridden with plague. And so if you're rich, you try to get away from that and into the country. So all yeah. of the rich people hanging out away from the poor people who are plague ridden are telling each other stories to try and basically pass the time while they, you know, can't go home to the cool city. Um, and this is one of these, or it's based on basically a combination of two of the stories from the Decameron. Um, so it's not a true story, but it is a medieval story. Excellent. Decameron sounds like uh, a bad character or the evil entity in an episode or a season of Stranger Things. Um, oh, it kind of does. You get chased down by the Decameron. But... We then cut to a completely different scene. So we've left the uh, convent. I nearly I wanted to call it a nunnery, but they've left the convent. And uh, we're now with Lord Bruno, played by Nick Offerman, and his wife, Francesca. And they're having a very cold and awkward kind of dinner where he wants to moan about the Guelphs or Gelfs. He hates the Guelphs. Uh, he hates them. Uh, and his wife is more interested in checking out in maybe, I was going to say the most unsubtle way, but it's up there with Isolde for the lack of subtlety she displays. It's pretty while bad. Checking out the dude that she's obviously been having sex with. 
Um, Lord Bruno is complaining about her lavish lifestyle while she clearly is living in... Like, they're, they're, they're probably well off for the time, but they're still living in a shitty castle that looks cold and uncomfortable. Right, and I think at some point he's like, you have two dresses. <laughs> two dresses? How dare you? And that's supposed to be overly lavish. Um, I also would like to note the Guelphs are a real thing that he would be complaining about. Uh, so Garfagnana in the 14th century was embroiled in wars between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. Um, so the Guelphs are supporters of the Pope and the Ghibellines are supporters of the Holy Roman Emperor, who have been basically mm-hmm. on and off in conflict since the late 11th century. Um, so he is, since he hates the Guelphs, uh, the Guelphs are the papal faction. He is apparently on the side of the Holy Roman Emperor, for those of you who want to, I don't know, make something of that. <laughs> and if you do want to make something of it, post about it in our Facebook. Please do. Right. Francesca and Masetto, so Francesca is um, Nick Offerman's wife, um, they have sex. Now. It, it's like she's having an affair. She's having an affair, which means she's not going to go to heaven. Um, but that's No one in this movie she... is going to heaven. Yeah, they're, they're what, Sarah? They're not, of course they're not. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, then there's some pillow talk where he clearly uh, just wants to get out and leave. And she is really doing her best to be loud. And he's worried about Nick Offerman's character finding him. And she just seems to be just very happy that if that's a possibility happening, I think she just wants to rub it in his face. Yeah. Masetu is more worried about the fact that he's probably likely to have his balls cut off. If he gets caught, so uh, yeah, he gets a bit nervous, and then Nick Offerman or Lord Bruno does come in. Yep. Um, so Mazzetto just manages to escape, yeah. um, and kind of runs back to the servants' quarters. At which point, uh, so he kind of falls, he kind of goes to sleep, and Bruno can't figure out exactly who it is, but ends up be- figuring out that you know one of them has still an elevated heart rate, basically, and cuts mm-hmm. off a lock of his hair. And says, okay, so tomorrow I'll be able to figure this whole thing out by who has the shorter lock of hair. But Mazzetto is still awake, and so he figures this out. So he cuts off a lock of hair of all of the other servants. Which is very clever. Yes. It actually is very clever. And Sarah, you told me that at the time that this was actually in the, the camera. Yes. So this is uh, this is the one bit that's from uh, most of the movie is based on story one from day three and this however is story two from day three um but it's not referring Mm. to the same character as the previous one but uh it's a you know kind of theme of these sort of clever uh basically lower class men Hmm. finding ways to have sex with women well sure that's what we're all trying all the time Mm -hmm. um so he managed to escape uh i think he blames it on a demon which is pretty funny. I think that a demon Bruno must have come in the night and cut off everyone's hair. I love his hair. Uh, Bruno, I kind of get the impression Bruno, Bruno is fairly certainly knows his Masetto. Um, Francesca then jumps on Masetto in the garden in front of at least two soldiers. And I mean, Bruno looks out the window and sees them and it's like, Boom, that's it. So he yeah. has to flee. This is very Isolde-esque gets... in its level of subtlety. That it's like, let's hang out in the garden and make out literally downstairs from my husband's bedroom. And and I just realized it. This this is baby James Franco. Uh-huh. Who was involved with the original <laughs> assault. Ah. So both of them have bad choices in the lady department when it comes to hiding their infidelity. Yep. 
They are they are not um, very good at this. Uh, my favorite bit of the movie is actually no, it's the scene where Masetto uh, runs and he gets chased by two guards and they're like, "No, stop running, stop running!" <laughs> and he's like, "No, you're gonna kill me!" And they're like, "Yeah, fair enough." And then he just keeps running because they're wearing armor and are overweight. Right. So they can't keep up with him. So he runs away. And it's like, it, it's, it's a weird thing just in your head. Because if you picture any action movie escape scene, it's like protracted and long. Mm-hmm. He runs to the end of a field and the two lads give up halfway through the field. Right. <laughs> they're just not, we're never going to catch him. We're wearing armor and carrying weapons. Yeah, they just give up. It's, like, it's great. They just give and up. And one cool. of the guards is John Gabris, who is a frequent Comedy Bang Bang guest. Uh, you you said uh, I only know him from uh, Comedy Bang Bang. Yeah, I've never seen like, him before. I don't know him from anything because I don't even listen to Comedy <laughs> Bang Bang. So it's like a complete stranger to me. Sarah, we then get back to the convent and we meet the very, very lovely Alison Bree, who in real life is married to Dave Frank. Oh, really? Which explains, yes, they're married in real life. Oh, how weird. Which explains the hotness of their scenes together, which we'll get to later on. Yes, they have some chemistry because she is not a very good nun. And, in fact, the reason she and, is not a very good nun. And he's not a very good actor. <gasps> oh, shit. <laughs> so the reason she is not a very good nun is because she has zero interest in being a nun. She really would like to, you know, get a dowry and get out of the convent and get married. Um, but basically, her dad is too broke. So instead, he has dumped her in the convent because he can basically give the convent less money than would be required for a dowry. <laughs> That's very clever. So she's been trying to get out, hoping that she he'll marry her off. And he's like, nah, I don't have to pay it, Dario. I'll just fire you in there and let you live there with the, the rest of the nuns. And it turns out that he's been, I think it's revealed that he's been paying quite a lot of money to her or for her to be there. So it's not even like he's saving money. It's like he's killing two birds with one stone. Right. We'll talk a little bit more about this later. He probably is saving some money, um, mm-hmm. but maybe not that much. In order to make money, uh, Sister Alessandra has been embroidering. She seems to be very good at it. Um, she probably learned it as a, a young girl growing up in a rich family. So I imagine that's what they did. And she gives it all to Father Tommaso, who is now going to take it to the market. So he gets on his little donkey wagon and he heads off. Uh, the gardener quits on their way and he makes a snarky comment about the nuns having a penis tree. Yes. So I was thrilled when he made that comment because the penis tree is a real medieval thing. Or at least there are real medieval images of nuns literally picking penises off the penis tree. Uh, You can find these delightful images in our Facebook group after this episode is released. Yeah. Or you can just find them. Yeah, if you Google in your own head, well, if you Google nun penis they tree, are, they are a thing of absolute horror. Um, it's great. It's it's exactly yeah. it's exactly what it says in the tin. Oh my god! <laughs> Don't, it's uh It's literally a tree of penises, and the nun and there's a nun reaching onto the tree of penises and just picking picking some out, as you do it's, as a nun. I don't even, I can't. (laughs) So, Masetto has been escaping and he's worried about them traveling on behind him. And he comes across Tommaso, who is absolutely loaded and falling all over himself uh, into a river. And he's completely drunk and Masetto comes in and helps him. Uh, The embroidery's 
been washed down the river. Poor Alessandra. Um, and in order to say thank you for helping him, Tomasa says, come back uh, to uh, my convent with me or my chapel with me and uh, and I'll look after you for the night. And um, during when they're having a conversation and a couple of glasses of wine, uh, Masetto confesses. Yep. Um, and I'm not going to go into the details about what he confesses because I'm a good, clean Catholic boy and I can't talk about this sort of stuff. So I leave it to my evil uh, woman, um, who uh, is my podcast partner, who can talk about all of the dirty stuff he said. Yeah, it is extremely dirty. And this, by the way, is definitely something that medieval priests would have had to deal with. And in fact, if you read medieval confession manuals, it talks about the very explicit sexual acts that people might have confessions about and what you then have to prescribe to them as penance. Uh, So one of the quotes I worked down is that, you know, he's sort of going off and he goes, uh, you know, oh, at some point he's like, oh, is this sodomy? And and the guy goes, yep, that's sodomy. Uh, There's also a good point where she goes, well, most of the time she would request I spill my seed on her face. Direct quote from the movie. Didn't need to hear that. And And John C. Riley is like very chill about this whole thing, which might suggest something. I I read it a little bit, a little bit less chill than you did. Uh, what I read it was that John C. Riley was listening, and he wasn't getting angry or shouting at him. But I think in his head he was thinking, "This all sounds good. <laughs> like right. maybe maybe I should be trying this myself." Kind of stuff. Um, maybe he already is. But he comes up with a oh, Sarah. Um, he comes up. <laughs> I don't want to picture John C. Riley doing anything like that. Um, but uh, <laughs> now it's in my head forever. Uh, Tommaso, or Father Tommaso, comes up with the idea that Masetto will pretend to be a deaf mute so that he can not have to talk to the nuns and he won't get them on the wrong side because they get angry when gardeners talk to them. So he's not going to understand them and he's not going to talk to them. Yes. So this, by the way, is the main plot of the Decameron story that this is based on. Although that part is, um, it's actually his idea as opposed to uh, their, like the priest figure is not involved at all. Mm -hmm. Um, The other quick note I wanted to make is that they are definitely very explicitly drinking the, uh, the communion wine this entire time that they're getting super drunk. Mm. It's it's very funny, um, the fact that the communion wine is the it's like we're we're not and they still seem quite pious is the funny thing about it while also clearly breaking several uh, several rules of good Catholicism which I like because they kind of take religion seriously in some ways while not always being very good at practicing it. Mm-hmm. We uh, we find out um, from this that uh, Alessandra and Geneva go to confession. Um, and Geneva just basically copies what uh, Alexandra said because she doesn't have anything going on in her own life. Poor Geneva. Um, and or Geneva and uh, Fernanda just kind of, I kind of did she goes to is, she goes to confession as well. I don't and, remember. I feel like she was just like day like dour and angry, and clearly was yeah, also. I think, I think she, she also then made something like made it like copy the same thing. That's I think yeah. That's and they exactly were like, come happened. on. She goes in and copies it. Come on, what do you? We know you've been up to stuff. Yeah, but um, Ginevra was like trying it, to sell it and also clearly hadn't done anything. And Fernanda was like, I feel like you've done something that you're not confessing, but it's not that. <laughs> so they then meet Masetto um, and Fernanda tries to attack him. 
This is the second time she's been shouting and angry at men. I'm starting to think there's a pattern here. That might be why I like this movie. That could be why I like this movie, sir. But uh, it also could be telling us something about Fernanda's personal life. It if might. You know what I mean. It just might. Um, yes, yeah, so they're, like, super angry and basically physically assault him before finding out what his deal is and that he's the new gardener. Uh. Uh, wait, I just want to, I'm just, I'm going to read word for word the note that Sarah Liftdecker has uh, written here. She says, she, meaning Fernanda, Geneva and Alessandra are all very intrigued by sexy, deaf, mute dude. <laughs> Sexy according to them, not according to me. I don't find Dave Franco sexy. That, uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and then uh, there's a point where Alexandra, um, played by Alison Brie, um, is talking to um, Masetto. Masetto's not listening, you know, obviously not responding to her because he pretends to be a deaf mute. He's just kind of smiling uh, vaguely at her. And they almost have sex, but she backs off. She's like, no, I, I can't have sex. I'm a nun, which is... How it should be, people. But not how it is in the remainder of this movie. Oh, Sarah, I've blocked it out of my mind. Uh, and that night, they get a visit, Sarah, from who? Uh, so Marta, who plays uh, Jessa in Girls, is uh, Fernanda's best friend, from who still lives in the outside world. And she comes and she visits and basically talks about pretty much how amazing it is to have sex with men. And they're all very intrigued. Uh, they're also, they're getting drunk off the communion wine. Um, initially, it just her and Fernanda, but then Ginevra and Alessandra end up joining them. Um, the uh, Marta and Fernanda then start making out. And Ginevra is initially kind of not sure what's happening, but then sort of intrigued. And she and Fernanda mm. end up having sex. I I hated this scene. I was a little bit put off by this because the other two more experienced ladies um so that's fernanda and marta they're very aggressive to Geneva to me and it kind of made me feel uncomfortable watching it how, how did you feel about that Sarah? yeah the whole thing was not great so she actually says no a couple of times and so they ignore her saying no so that does make this sexual assault um, then the whole thing is kind of a little weird in terms of the turn that it ends up taking because through this experience, she ultimately seems to realize, uh, both that she kind of has, maybe has feelings for Fernanda or at the very least that she, um, is gay, that she, um, that she prefers women. Um, and she yeah. did, it's the, the, the weird thing about it is that's a really empowering moment. Yeah, and so there's something... When she comes yeah. running in and she's like, I, I like women. I don't want to be a nun anymore. I like women. And it's like, yeah, that's that's good. It's just that it's a, unfortunate it had to come through this to get to that. Yes, yeah, so I really wish they had done that scene differently and hadn't had her come to that realization through um, essentially sexual assault. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that made me... I think we both said it at the time is the next day, Ginevra, who starts thinking she has feelings for Fernanda, and Fernanda is just completely dismissive of her. It acts as if nothing had happened. We we didn't do anything last night. And Ginevra just wants to say, oh, you know, we had fun. and Yeah. You know, I, I enjoyed it. And Martin, myself, we, we, I thought we had a connection or whatever. And then Fernanda's like, no, what are you talking about? Just, and moves on. And it's 
it's at that point it's like uh, yeah you know it feels very advantageous of the other two to have done that but right it feels predatory yeah Yeah, that's the word i was looking yeah um so i then i feel really bad for genevra for the next like several scenes of this movie so marta also starts talking about this belladonna potion that she knows of which i thought was a really weird thing but apparently it's a real potion that people use during the middle ages and that did in fact have these effects that um it basically enlarges your pupils and you sort of put it in your eyes and it enlarges your pupils um and reddens your cheeks and it's essentially supposed to kind of make you look sexy and uh therefore help you seduce men yeah. Um, so they make this in the woods. Uh, Marta warns Fernanda that she should not uh, put it, that she should not drink it, that she can only uh, put a couple of drops in her eyes. So she does that. Uh, she also cuts Fernanda's um, finger and then uses the blood as like weird blush. Um, that actually would have been unnecessary because the potion also rouges cheeks, I learned. <laughs> um, so they didn't need to do the gross blood thing. And so Ginevra is hiding nearby and witnesses the whole thing, but doesn't, but kind of like misses some of the instructions. Um, So then we end up basically having like a kind of sex comedy of errors situation. Yeah. Yeah. It turns into this weird, it's sex comedy, but it's also the second time in a matter of, I'd say five minutes that we have a sexual assault. In this case, they, they drug Maceto. And Fernanda um, gets him hard and has sex with him right up to the point where he's about to finish. And then she just like stops because obviously I think it's implied that she and Marta have a thing. And later on, I think it's implied that they want death to all men. So she's as, not as into you do. men at all. As you do. Um, so they leave um after you know getting at the edge and he's like all confused he's like fuck and then in walks alessandra who has clearly decided um, that she's ready to uh have sex with a man a man it doesn't matter who it is um so she picks her husband and <laughs> they they start having sex and they both enjoy it and i'm assuming he didn't last very long since he was right on the edge Poor dude. but since she was an inexperienced nun she probably didn't know anything yeah she's like oh it must always be like this <laughs> uh so you were saying belladonna is a real potion yeah so belladonna is some kind of plant and there was apparently a potion made with belladonna in the middle ages that uh that did this that you would like put it in your eyelids and uh the and it would like widen your pupils like that apparently is just an effect that it has um but it is also um in quantities if you drink it it has hallucinogenic properties and even uh can cause can poison you can actually kill you so uh that will become relevant shortly hmm um then we get some of the best scenes uh, are the ones involving Fred Armisen. So Bishop Bartholomew. Right. Um or Bartholomew uh arrives and he comes in and Tommaso and Maria are giving him a walk around the um giving him a walk around the um the convent and he's talking to them about taxation and money and how much uh, they can get and why they aren't making as much money as they should be. Now we know it's because Tommaso is drinking pretty much anything he can get his hands on um because he's drinking it away uh but 
Uh, Genereva uh, at the same time is making her own Belladonna pushing, or potion um, and she starts to have hallucinations which I think is pretty funny. Because she um, doesn't listen to the instructions so she heard how to make the potion but then left and so she didn't hear Marta's warning that you definitely shouldn't drink it. Um, so she drinks exactly. it. Poor Ginevra. <laughs> It's uh, it's. I think that's actually it's actually a very funny scene. At the same time, Masetto wants some more of that sweet, sweet Alessandra action, so he sneaks into a room. And while they start having sex, in walks this old nun who just sits down and starts embroidering. Because <laughs> she's clearly like blind, she's basically, and like does not see what's happening. And so then Alessandra just like gets up and also starts embroidering, and Masetto hides under the bed, and is about to yeah. leave and sneak behind the nun, but then um. Bartolomeo, the bishop, and Tommaso, and the uh, the mother superior, Maria, also, like, they all walk in giving the bishop a tour. And so he ends up having to, like, hide behind a door for a little bit, I think. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's actually, it's a, it's a solid It's really funny. I mean, it's, it's a great scene. It's a solid it's a bit scene. of comedy. Uh, <laughs> um, and escape. And then he accidentally outs himself because he has to say no um, to, she goes to do something. He's like, no. And then she realizes that he can talk. Yep. So he finally manages to escape. And after, you know, she, I guess, gets away from all of the, you know, old nuns and other convent uh, authorities, she confronts him about lying. And he explains what happened and that Father Tommaso actually was in on the whole thing. Um, mm. And then they start to have sex again, you know, because yeah, why of not? Of course, as you would. I think they've fallen in love at this point. Yeah, they're going to get married. Hmm. <laughs> uh, then Geneva comes in um, she's still a little bit feeling the effects and she's a bit high and uh, and um, he she doesn't realise what was going on then Marta and Fernanda uh, or sorry yeah Marta and Fernanda come in and Geneva and Alessandra hide right and well it's also Geneva actually tries to seduce Mazzetto at first you're right that's what but happens. then she yes. actually stops and says wait no I'm gay I don't want to do this um, which is actually kind of nice. She said she was gay. But Sarah, in historical accuracy terms, where are gay and trans people in the 1300s? Absolutely. Um, that's the short answer, at least. There is a lot of discussion about exactly what that means and what that looks like. But we will talk about that in more detail on a future episode. Perfect. I'm looking forward to it because uh, I do remember reading an article about it once. And you said to me that you had mixed feelings on it. And it's not often that you tell me you have mixed opinions. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking about that in greater Absolutely. detail. As she's having her confession. Although, is it really a confession? Is it but as she's having her moment of realization with Maceto, Marta and Fernanda burst in. And Geneva goes and hides alongside Alessandra. They're both very surprised. Or, or Geneva's very surprised very to see Alessandra's there. What, what are you doing here? She's like, shh. Um, and I actually thought that was quite funny. Um, but they kidnap him and take him to a coven of naked dancing witches. Now, that's not something I see written down very often. But this was very funny. It was um, very funny. I will say this is where the movie a little bit feels like it kind of goes off the rails. And I'll talk in uh, in a little bit about some accuracy issues around here. But uh... it's it's very, I it's it's a movie, right? I didn't know anything about this movie before we said sat down to watch it i think sarah might have i think all i knew was that it was basically a comedy based on the decameron i think that was all i knew and that it was like sexy nuns sexy nuns which are as i like to call them nuns (laughs) 
<sighs> I don't I don't distinguish. Um, but <laughs> they were uh, they, I I distinctly remember texting Sarah about ten times and just going, "What? Wait, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> where? Did, wait, hold on. Whoa, where is this coming from? Um, because it's just so off the wall. <laughs> like it's like one minute you have. I'm thinking, oh, so this is about all of the nuns are just sexually frustrated and they're all looking for a bit of sex and they, they the two of them are in a relationship but they want to see maybe the man. And I thought maybe they were, their plan had maybe, in my head I was thinking, maybe they're going to try and get him to get them pregnant and then that there'd be some way for a nun, if she was pregnant, that they'd have to release her back into the wild, so to speak, or whatever, right? That's what it was in my head, I was thinking. The wild, yeah. And that's what was in my head, I was thinking. But then to find out that, no, it's been a coven of witches who are carrying out a fertility (laughs) ritual and they're about to kill a man so that it gives them, like, arcane powers. And I was like, I am kind of on board, but also this movie just went insanely Yeah, it's so weird. But, so they're about to kill Mazzetto, um, at which point Ginevra runs in and she's like super high and um, basically she and uh, Alessandra come in and are trying to stop them from killing Mazzetto. I think that Ginevra might actually murder Marta. She like hits her in the head really hard with a log. And do we see her again? Yeah. I don't I see. I remember saying this to you is. I thought she did come back. And I said to you, did she not come back? And you said to me, she didn't. So she might actually just have killed. <laughs> yeah, she might legitimately have just murdered this woman. Um, but they rescue Mazzetto, who, uh, you know, at this point announces that he's not really a deaf muter. I guess he, he starts like yelling and screaming, like, what the hell are you doing? So everyone now knows he's not a deaf mute. And Ginevra then at this point tells everybody that she is gay. And also that she is Jewish. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a Jew. We do have a Jew. And um, I do think it's funny that the only reason Maceto is still alive is that she hits Marta. And the only reason she chose Marta as the one to hit is because Marta is with Fernanda. Yeah. And it's like out of jealousy and rage. She wasn't coming in to save Maceto. Which right, is what Alessandra kind of wants like. to save Maceto. She's just Alessandra upset. She's just upset and she kills Marta or smacks her really hard in the head anyway. And then she confesses that she's gay and a Jew. Yep. Did they have Jewish people in the 1300s? They did have Jewish people in the 1300s. Uh, They even have Jewish people in Italy. Um, I will talk a little bit in the next section about uh, secret Jews and what's right and what's a little bit off there. secret juice that's why you'd have to have secret ham to sneak them out or to catch them (laughs) exactly just sneak him some ham and see if they eat it so they run back to the uh, convent and Ginevra's like freaking out um, and she starts yelling and everyone's waking up and Ginevra Alessandra Fernanda they're all in the corridor looking for Tommaso and the mother superior when the two of them come out of the same bedroom yep and I think we know where that's been going. Yep. So that's probably been going on for a while that the two of them have been having sex. <gasps> and of course, unfortunately, at this point, the bishop, also Fred Armisen, also comes out of his room and basically says, like, what the hell is going on here? 
because there's all of mm-hmm. these like screaming nuns. It's clear that the um, that the priest has been having sex with the mother superior. Like who knows what all of these nuns have been doing. Um, so he decides, you know, he has to get things in order. Yeah, so he's like, right, we're going to have to sit here and hear your confession. And he's writing everything down and they've all gone in as a single people and, and told him. Um, it's very funny. He he knows what to do with a lot of stuff. He doesn't know what to do with some of the things. It's like, and he's he plays this. See, I, I'm not a big fan of Fred Armisen. Um, I find that a lot of times he's over the top mm-hmm. or he That's just fair. does this weird, weird starey thing. Where he doesn't emote, but in this, his his reaction is perfect. He sounds he he really comes across like I am a beleaguered man who is putting up in a situation which is ridiculous. Yeah, and it's almost like he's gone into shock. But he's just like, right now, I just have to do it. So then, when he finds out that one of his nuns is Jewish, he he literally have no idea what he's to do. He's just like, I'm just gonna move on. I'm just not dealing with this. <laughs> I'm just gonna move on. Um, they also at some point, yeah. I think Fernandez like talking about her witch rites and like starts talking about how she's eaten blood, and he just kind of looks at her and goes, "Do you think I've ever had to write down eating blood before <laughs> when yeah. taking a confession? Do you think I've ever? Do you think I've ever written down eating blood before? And it's like it's so good though he does it. It's like yeah, I don't think you've ever written that down, <laughs> unless of course you've been. Oh, maybe he's met other Jews. <gasps> <Hi-yo>! <laughs> Blood libel jokes, classic. <laughs> we will we will discuss the blood libel in more detail on a future episode. Just so we know, I only learned that from Sarah. I, I did up until uh, we started being friends. I didn't know anything about Jewish culture whatsoever, and didn't know that they ate and drank the blood of innocent. Um, Catholics and Christian children. It is amazing to me. I don't. I, I mean, that's that was not Jewish culture. That's that's what your people came up with. What you? We did. Not. I mean, not quite your people. It was the English. Oh wait, sorry. That's <laughs> definitely definitely not my people. Um, but, but but, okay, so right, my, sorry, your what? people is in Catholics, but it was English Catholics. They were the worst Catholics. <laughs> right. um, so the sisters uh, make friends with each other again. They're like, you know what we. We shouldn't be. Um, we're we're all on the same page here, and they decide that it's time to get Masetto out of being imprisoned because he's been sent back to Bruno, so he's definitely going to be killed or probably tortured before being killed. Yeah, I also do just want to note at this point that he has also sealed up his wife behind a wall, and yeah, Bruno, yeah, has, and yeah. makes up and and makes an awful comment about the fact that he has high hopes that his new wife will prove a better candidate once she reaches puberty. I t- He makes that comment twice. Yeah, it's not great. I think, doesn't he say it to his wife and he says it to I think um, he says Masetto. earlier that he wants to replace her with somebody who hasn't yet reached puberty. And then he yeah, makes that sorry, comment that's later. What he says. Yeah. yeah, he's like, uh, I, think he, I think what he says earlier on is something along the lines of Oh, she'll be a beautiful girl in a few years or something along yeah. those lines. So I think that's yeah. who he ends up marrying. It's like, oh, yeah, you're you're not a good dude. You're a good actor. Yeah, he's a. And you seem yeah. You seem like a lovely man in real life, but uh, Bruno, horrible. And boy. I think he really pulls off the role of uh, making him this just like cartoonish evil dude, and I think it works. Um, but that's definitely what mm. he is. He's definitely like cartoonish evil, horrible. Yeah. So we're left with Masetto, um, and he's in. I don't know why I'm saying that in 
<laughs> weird accent. But Maceto's in prison and he's asking the guards, you know, oh, we were friends. And the guards are like genuinely taking the piss. We're like, yeah, we should definitely let you out because like we won't end up having our throats cut and being, you know, <laughs> being burned at the stake for helping you. Of course we're going to let you out. And in fairness, like they're right. Like they shouldn't have to do yeah. this. Um, I mean, you can't blame but him for, you can't blame Mazzetta for trying, but obviously mm-hmm. the guards, you know, are not good enough friends of Mazzetto to risk their own lives for the situation. Exactly. They're not going to let themselves die just to save this little sap who couldn't keep it in his <laughs> pants. Um, so the nuns come in and um, distract the guards in maybe the second funniest bit in the movie, um, where it's just a, they stick a candle to the back of a turtle. And it slowly walks past. And the guards are like, is that a candle on the back of a turtle? Let's go. <laughs> and then they leave their post. So they take off. And so then the nuns all sneak in and they basically like made up a little dummy to uh, dress as Mizetto and then sneak him out in a nun's habit. Um, so they're heading back to the convent and en route to the convent, they see a donkey, the very same mm-hmm. donkey that according to Fernanda kept escaping, but that she was clearly using to meet up with Marta and her witch coven. Um, mm-hmm. It turns out that the reason this escaped donkey is hanging out is because so Tommaso has been sent away to uh, work to be a monk as opposed to being the priest associated with the convent. But he and he, but Maria is using the donkey as an excuse to sneak out to um, have sex with him because they're, they're in love. I think it's really very sweet. Oh, that is. Yeah. Kind of sweet. Sarah, Sarah, what's the difference between a priest and a monk? Uh, so if you are a monk, first of all, you are supposed to be more secluded and not have contact and not have as much contact with people unless you're one of the kind of preaching friar orders. Um, uh, and you wouldn't ordinarily be somebody who would like take confession. Um, you'd very possibly be residing in a more kind of purely rural area. And you really would almost certainly only in fact, then be in contact with other men with, uh, with monk, with other monks. Yeah. Excellent. So he's now a monk now. So he's meant to be hiding away inside, um, a monastery, right. but he's sneaking out because he's in love with Maria. Yeah. Hopefully they're going to escape together and run off and be happy ever after. Yeah, it's nice. John C. Riley and Molly Shannon deserve to find love. I really hope they do. And that's the end of the movie. And it, we'll talk about our, our opinions on it later <laughs> on. But right now we need to find out what they got right and what they got wrong in a section we call Vera at Um. So, why don't we start with some things that they didn't get quite right. Oh, you mean like all of it? Uh, no, there's a lot that they got right, but a few things that aren't quite right. So, first of all, while there is some indication that at least some people take religion seriously, in the context of a convent, I would like to see more signs of, you know, religious practice and of uh, the very active medieval devotional culture, um, which in particular, and we'll talk about this more in a bit, included uh, a lot of, you know, devotion to the image of Christ. So uh, I would have liked to see more, you know, nice, nice buff Jesus statues hanging around in this convent. I was just, uh, I was just about to say, were you, were, was it, are you basically saying there weren't enough buffs? Yeah, there was not enough buff Jesus. Do you think maybe uh, there had been more and Fernanda took them down? Oh, like maybe she was going around destroying Buff Jesus statues in the middle of the night? Destroying Buff Jesus. (laughs) Maybe. That would explain that. Um, 
less easily explained away is uh, the witchcraft situation. So mm-hmm. I'm not just talking about a question of like whether there were real witches or not. Um, the issue that I have with it is that the coven of witches and the specific way in which women's witchcraft is presented is very much an early modern idea of witchcraft rather than a medieval one. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I wish that they'd maybe not gone quite that heavy on that particular like naked dancing with the devil killing men for fertility rituals kind of witchcraft in a movie that's medieval rather than early modern um and i kind of have mixed feelings about the whole thing given that and i think some movies have kind of done this well and some movies haven't but there is something like slightly problematic about saying that yes this thing that basically men use to punish women who didn't fit the mold um, was an actual real thing, and they were essentially right to punish them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm not totally there on the whole witchcraft situation. Okay, um, right, I I, I yeah. agree with that. There, witchcraft is often was often put forward as just as you said a way to punish people, uh, and the idea that this is held up as like, oh, there were actually witches dancing around naked in large groups in the woods is probably not right and especially not at this time period right yeah and so uh, it's not even a an idea that comes from this time period it's a later one um and obviously very possibly wasn't true or in either period um uh, and i think has kind of sexist misogynist roots in terms of the whole ideology so not super on board with that um the other thing that i wish they'd maybe done a little bit better is that as stoked as i am to see one of my people represented in this movie um to uh, to see a jew um jew watch in medieval edition um i think that they do a kind of weird job of dealing with the reality of secret jews Um, So it was pretty Mm. common that people in particular would uh, convert to Christianity from Judaism for various reasons with questionable sincerity. Uh, So some of them Mm -hmm. might be people who were actually forced to, you know, were actually basically held at sword point and forcibly baptized. Uh, Some of them might be people who, you know, they were very young and a family member pressured them to convert or they might have converted to say, get out of a criminal conviction or to marry a Christian. Um, So there are all sorts of scenarios in which there are basically insincere converts who are then secretly practicing Judaism and who would, to some extent, at least identify as Jews. And that seems to be kind of what they're implying with uh, Ginevra. But I feel like if they're going to do that, I would have liked to see some sign that she was attempting to still maintain a Jewish identity in some kind of meaningful way, because we actually have a lot of evidence from things like Inquisition records that secret Jews did in fact then do things like attempt to, you know, maybe do some extra cleaning on a Friday night or not eat ham, you know, which is a real struggle. Um, (laughs) (laughs) For both practical and taste related reasons. Um, (laughs) um, So I would have liked to see them handle that with a bit more awareness of uh, the actual reality of being a secret Jew, as well as the dangers of being a secret Jew. If she'd actually told the bishop, actually, I'm Jewish and like pretending to be Christian, but I'm still a Jew and doing all those Jewish things, she would have been like sent off to the Inquisition and at least would have had to do some pretty intense public penance and maybe would have been burned at the stake. 
for heresy. Oof. Yeah, that's uh, it's pretty severe consequences. Yeah. I I also makes me laugh thinking that the last movie we did um, was The Physician, which featured a Christian pretending to be a Jew. And this one features a, or features a Jew pretending to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. Pretty, Symmetry. Pretty big turnaround. But Sarah, what did the movie get right? Um, so a couple of things that I actually thought this movie did really well. Uh, so first of all, this is just a very small thing, but it talks at some point about Alessandra's father, who's like a merchant, but not a very good one, trying to sell textiles in advance on credit, and then it's not working out. That is actually a real thing that people did in the Middle Ages, that they would sell goods in advance on credit. I have a lot of contracts about that exact practice. Uh, so I'm excited that that bit of real medieval economic history uh, found its way into this movie. Sarah, could you just explain what you mean by sold in advance on credit? Yeah, so essentially that you would plan to basically get into your hands a bunch of textiles. Uh, so either things you were planning on trading for, or in many cases, it would be that you own a workshop and you're planning on producing this amount of textiles or other goods. And so you would sell them in advance. And that would essentially be a way of you getting credit, which then you would very possibly use to produce or trade for the textiles in the first place. Yeah. So do you think, uh, for example, just to put it into a literary context, do you think that's what happens in The Merchant of Venice uh, when the ships are sunk, but they've, they've taken money for the goods that they were bringing over? And then when the ship sinks, they're fucked. Yeah, that's probably part of it, is that so he not only has this loan that he's taken out from Shylock, um, because his money is all tied up in this voyage, but he also probably has even more debts that he has accrued because he's already sold some of the goods on credit that are on these ships. Yeah. Um, Hence him being just like a giant mess. Now I finally get it. (laughs) It only took 20 years for me to figure out why he was so much trouble some of the money's on it. It's because he was in money or he was in debt to the mob. Uh, the mob. The mob? What the hell's the mob? <laughs> uh, he was in debt in to debt the mob. To Queen Mab okay. of the fairies. Queen Mab. Of, oh yeah. My favourite of the, the fairies. Um, Sarah, what else did you get right? Uh, so first of all, I do also think that this is a pretty decent adaptation of the Decameron. Um, so it does centre around the story of a man named Mazzetto who gets hired as um, a gardener at a convent And uh, then basically the story is a little different. It actually ends up talking about how he manages to end up sleeping with all of the nuns in the convent, including the abbess. Um, And then basically manages to work things out because they're all colluding on this so that he actually stays there until he is a very old man. And in the meantime, uh, fathers a number of uh, young children who are then sent off in their turn um, to be monks or nuns. Wait, so the abbess is the... Le- the head nun in a convent. Yeah, so she's not the mother superior. It's the same. Oh, yeah. Okay. It's a yeah, just a different term for it. Ab- abbess just it sounds like right. So ab- obviously, abbess is the female equivalent of an yes. abbot in a monastery. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. So okay. either abbess or mother superior is a legitimate term uh, for the same mm. figure. Well, it doesn't sound as good when you go abbess jump the gun. Mm, yeah. Whereas Mother Superior jumped the gun. <laughs> Sounds really True. Good. So that's an argument in favor of saying Mother Superior. <laughs> it's, all, it's also just a cool way mm, to describe right. it. She's the superior mother. Yes. Um, and related to that, the reason that Boccaccio wrote this story is 
because he was very much aware of the fact that it was a real problem in his time, that there were a lot of nuns that, you know, often continue to feel sexual desire despite being made nuns. Um, he actually has a whole quote about that, that there are many men and women who are so stupid as to really believe that when a young woman has the white veil placed on her head and the black cow on her back, she is no longer a woman and no longer feels female cravings, as though when she became a nun, she was turned into stone. So mm-hmm, he's very mm-hmm. aware of the fact that nuns often did, you know, continue to feel sexual desire and that particularly in 14th and basically 14th to 16th century Italy, this is an especially huge problem because there are a ton of nuns who really don't want to be nuns. Mm. And this is related to the fact of dowry inflation, which is why it actually would be cheaper to send your daughter to be a nun than to get her married. Um, basically, the prices of dowry expected of dowries for people of your class, especially of the upper classes, just kept basically skyrocketing over the course of this period to such an extent that in a mem- that in many cities it essentially became impossible for most families to marry off more than one daughter. Wow. Yeah, so most families would essentially expect if they had multiple daughters that one gets to get married and the rest of them get to be nuns. Hmm. Sarah, this is a, a random question because it's just what he's written here is um, so she's no longer a woman and no longer feels female cravings as though when she became a nun she was turned into stone in the, the 1300s so the 14th century was female desire an accepted thing and was female pleasure taking in sex seen as is, was it was it a common thing to be seen as, as an acceptable thing almost? It was, um, I would say it's certainly something that was, that people were aware of. Um, yeah. It's not always considered to be a positive thing, certainly. And in fact, very often is not. Um, but there is an idea that, you know, there is an awareness, certainly, that women feel sexual desire, um, which is often, as I said, kind of presented negatively that, in fact, uh, you know, the sin of Eve is linked to her sexual desire. And so women's sexual desire is often presented as something that can be dangerous for men. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking is because in a Catholic dominated society as they were or a Christian dominated society as they were, it's seen as the 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 evil that started it yeah. all. It's what... All of us are born with sin from Eve. Yeah. Or, well, technically we're born with sin from our mothers because they had sex in order to make us. Right, but that ultimately and, stems originally from Eve. Hence it being called Eve, original exactly. sin. Original son, exactly. Original son, original <laughs> sin. So that's why I'm wondering, like, was it... I mean, even even growing up in Ireland in the, in the 70s, sorry, the 70s, I was born in 1981, but in the 80s and 90s, I distinctly remember being taught in sexual education that women didn't really enjoy sex like as if it wasn't a, a, a thing for a woman to enjoy it that it was like a, uh oh yeah it, a man will experience an orgasm a woman might not experience an orgasm and not as in it takes more work for a, a woman to experience an orgasm but as in they might not be capable of experiencing an orgasm and it was kind of like even as I was getting into my early teens, I remember thinking, I don't think that's true. Right. So I would say that's actually something that, I don't know, maybe has gotten worse in that uh, sexual desire, the sexual desire of women was something that was generally acknowledged to exist. 
But I will say it did also coexist alongside often a, a sense that women also were expected to control themselves against the perhaps even greater sexual desires of men. And one of the things that I think is a kind of weird difference is that in Catholicism, sex is presented as something that wives owe their husbands, like an obligation that wives have to their husbands. In that's true. Judaism... I mean, so, um, sorry, I mean, <laughs> it's true that that's how it's presented. Not it's true. <laughs> ah, I'm just going to cut myself out of this podcast. I, I get you. I, I get what you're going for. Um... In Judaism, however, it is presented instead as a duty that husbands owe their wives. Yeah. So, which is very interesting. So, ladies, get yourself a Jewish husband. <laughs> Jewish women, I guess, don't get yourselves Catholic husbands. <laughs> I was just trying to be nice. I I, I was just going by what you Catholic said. <laughs> So, yeah, so uh, there is definitely this sense that, you know, women experience sexual desire and that even when they are still, you know, when they have become nuns and are supposed to be, you know, married to Jesus, that doesn't necessarily go away. Um, And that especially when nuns don't have a lot of a nunly vocation, that's a particularly big problem. Well, I think that leads on to our uh, our next section very well, or dovetails very well with the next section, where we talk about something that actually would have been happening back in the time, and what we call Historia et Veritas, which is history and truth. Sarah, what were the sex lives of nuns, either real or imaginary, like back in the day? So I, I feel like this might be the like section where I'm just going to scandalize you by telling you things about uh, your own religious professionals. <laughs> I'm I'm going to um to mute my sound here, but for everyone listening, I just want you to understand that I've taken my earphones off, I have my fingers in my ear, and I'm just going la 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 like that there in my head for the rest of how long do you think this will take? A couple minutes. Oh my god. How can you get a couple of minutes on the fact that women or sorry I mean women, I mean nuns, had no sex lives because they're celibate and they love Jesus. And Jesus had the buffest body of them all, so no man could compare. Well, many nuns did have sex lives. There was la, 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 an la, active, la. what is described as an active minority of nuns who ended up having sex. So uh, either slipping out of the convent or sneaking men in or sometimes having sex with the priests who were uh, who had to be in convents occasionally so monks male monks could be entirely isolated from women you couldn't have the same thing in a convent they had to at least see the priest because women aren't allowed to act as priests and take confessions so you had to at least have a priest who showed up at the convent now and then to take the confessions of the nuns um the nuns were so therefore not always great at celibacy And part of the problem is, of course, that they often come in contact with these priests who had quite a reputation in the Middle Ages for being really bad at celibacy. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. To such an extent that in 12th century Al-Andalus, so Muslim-ruled Spain, there was in fact a law made that Muslim women could not enter churches because the priests were so hell-bent on having sex with any woman they happened to find. 
Oh my god. And that the Christian women should also be prevented from entering churches when not strictly necessary for their religious observance, because the assumption was otherwise they were just going to be there to have sex with the priests. Oh um, there's also a fascinating book, which uh, I overall recommend, called Montayu. Um, some of the ideas of the author are rather antiquated, but he cites a lot of fascinating testimony from this town in southern France in the 14th century, which, among other things, reveals through uh, an inquisitorial hearing that almost every single woman in the town was sleeping with a priest. Oh my god, can I read, uh, can I read this yes. quote? <clears throat> it's a law from 12th century Seville that says, Muslim women shall be prevented from entering day, or sorry, <clears throat> I'll start again. Muslim women shall be prevented from entering their abominable churches, for the priests are evildoers, fornicators, and sodomites. Frankish women must be forbidden to enter the church except on days of religious service or festivals, for it is their habit to eat and drink and fornicate with the priests, among whom there is not one who is not two or more women with whom he sleeps. Yep. So, uh, yeah, that was the law I was talking about before, that essentially the yeah. assumption made by Muslim rulers is that all of the priests are having sex. That essentially they just don't trust that whole celibacy thing. They're like, I don't think you're really following along with this. I can't. That's crazy to me that that was actually written down as a yep. law. <laughs> Um, and we do also have uh, a couple of references here and there indicating that there probably was a uh, lesbian sexual activity between nuns as well. Um, the texts are often a little less explicit on that front in part because uh, they often kind of like to pretend lesbians didn't exist um, mm -hmm. in the Middle Ages, but uh, there is some evidence that that was happening as well. Then, of course, the nuns who were not actually having sex often trended in rather sexualized ways in terms of how they describe their devotion to buff Jesus. Mm -hmm. um, nuns' relationship tell, with Jesus... Tell me more, Sarah Decker. I feel like I'm, I'm, in, an, I'm in Greece going, tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> like, did he have a scar on his vaginal side? He had a, he had a sexy, sexy yeah. scar, as we'll talk about just how sexy that scar was. Um, but nuns had a variety of visions of Jesus, um, which implied romantic and even very overtly sexual relationships. So one of my personal favorites on perhaps the more romantic side is that uh, Catherine of Siena, a very important 14th century saint and one of the few women doctors she, of the church. She married Jesus, Emily. Or Emily, sorry, Sarah. She married Jesus. She married Jesus using his foreskin as a ring. As we've all done. As we've all done. That's uh, that's what the foreskin is for. And Jesus, of course, was a good Jewish boy, so he had been circumcised, and his foreskin was available to uh, give to women his reign. <laughs> oh. Oh. <laughs> um, but perhaps my absolute favorite is Angela Foligno, who was a Dominican uh, tertiary, so a kind of lay sister, but uh, still had taken a vow of celibacy eventually. Um, she, who was active in the late 13th and early 14th century and sadly not canonized until a couple of years ago. She was canonized, uh, I believe it would have been Pope Francis in 2013, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, who had some rather racy visions uh, that she told her uh, male confessor about, as related here. On Holy Saturday, Christ's faithful one told me the wonderful and joy-filled experiences of God, which were now hers. 
Among other things, she related to me, Brother Scribe, uh, that on that very day, in a state of ecstasy, she found herself in the sepulchre with Christ. She said she had first of all kissed Christ's breast and saw that he lay dead with his eyes closed. Then she kissed his mouth, from which she added a delightful fragrance emanated, one impossible to describe. This moment lasted only a short while. Afterward, she placed her cheek on Christ's own, and he in turn placed his hand on her other cheek, pressing her closely to him. At that moment, Christ's faithful one heard him telling her, Before I was laid in the sepulchre, I held you this tightly to, him, to me. Even though she understood that it was Christ telling her this, nonetheless she saw him lying there with his eyes closed, lips motionless, exactly as he was when he lay dead in the sepulchre. Her joy was immense and indescribable. how did she get in there it's a vision so basically as far as i'm concerned she had a vision where she was lying next to dead jesus and then had an orgasm about it wait, come on wait, hold on a second where does it say where does it say it just says that her joy was immense uh-huh. and indescribable she it should uh-huh <laughs> listen come there. on i get, there's it was immense and indescribable uh-huh. like <laughs> I'm just saying, it uh-huh. like, doesn't necessarily have to mean sure. that she was orgasming with her joyful experiences of God. Sure. That is, however, very possibly how people understood it, especially if you move into the early modern period. Um, St. Teresa of Avila, another female doctor of the church, um, also had some rather racy visions, one of which is represented in a fantastic statue by the sculptor Bernini in Rome in the 17th century. We're going to post a picture of this sculpture in the Facebook group, and everyone can weigh in on the fact mm. that this woman looks like she's having an orgasm. Uh, Miss Teresa. Um, St. <laughs> Teresa of Avila is having a really good time there with Jesus. I, this, I, <laughs> I, know, the, I know the statue that Sarah is referring to, and um, oh yeah. That statue is hot. Uh, she's, she's, she's having a good time. <laughs> Uh, or, or, she's an exceptionally good actress. <laughs> Faking it for Jesus. Faking it for Jesus. Oh, <laughs> God, you're the best I've ever had. Yeah. That, oh, my God. Do you think that's where, that's where people, that's where it came from. <laughs> came. Is, uh, is people saying, oh, God, during sex is from that stage. It might be. Oh. Um. And finally, for those nuns who uh, perhaps were more interested in women than in men, like our dear sister Ginevra, there is a vein of scholarship that looks at particularly the images of the disembodied side wound of Christ. So the side wound of Christ, but uh, not actually on his body, depicted separately. (laughs) So there is some disagreement about this. And in fact, my dear friend Catherine has argued against this. Shout out to Catherine. But if you look at the disembodied side wound of Christ, it often looks rather vaginal. Um, And when you take that into account, combined with the descriptions by some um, female mystics of the ecstasies into which they went while suckling from um, or drinking blood from the side wound of Christ. Jesus it raises some questions about additional ways of thinking about the at least imaginary sex lives of medieval nuns. I, 
No, I, I genuinely, I looked up, I've, I've just typed in, I'm going to take a screenshot of what I just typed into Google here, which is Christ's vaginal And, um, I've got it. <laughs> just disembodied sideward is pretty vaginal. A lot of them kind of look pretty vaginal. Not all of them, or but many of them. Or the eye, or the eye of sorrow. That raises um, further questions. It's <laughs> just, you know, it could be, it could be connected to it. But um, yeah, that's wow. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll also post pictures of uh, Christ's disembodied vaginal side wound in the Facebook group. Yeah, please, please, nobody get turned on by that. <laughs> Or do that's that's please, up to please, you. Please. No, no, please don't. I, I, we, a lot of times it's very rare I yuck somebody's yum, but I'm yucking your yums because it's. Yuck. If you do, don't tell Ollie about it. Please don't tell me about it. Or do tell. Me about it. No, don't tell me about it. No, no. Uh, Sarah, I think we need to get on to a girlfriend section. So, <laughs> are you sufficiently scandalized? Uh, I scandalized. This is you've done nothing but scandalize me since we started this podcast. Um, and this might, this one might be the worst. Oh, I, I wonder. You know the way Christ is Lord. Yes. Um, oh, I'm glad you said yes when I said that. Uh, does that mean he gets I as prima nocturne? Oh God. Well, married? actually, so, um, not that, but. The laws against interfaith sex, uh, which are mostly centered on Christian women having sex with Jewish and Muslim men, explicitly. Doctor Decker, yes. can I just can I just stop you for yes. one second and just point out that you literally started this explanation with "well, actually." <laughs> oh no, I'm turning into a man. You know, you know, you're not mansplaining <laughs> to me. You're cat-splaining to <laughs> me true. and you're explaining my Catholicism to me. But I anyway, apologize continue. for explaining your religion <laughs> no, to no, you. It's um, I just think it's very funny. Go ahead. Juice-splaining? I don't know. I don't know. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but um, a real medieval law, um, a couple of real medieval laws uh, centered on forbidding interfaith sex, which is which does tend to be forbidding Christian women from having sex with Jewish or Muslim men, explicitly articulated as essentially adultery but you're cuckolding jesus oh my god that and i don't have the quote in front of me but uh it's but there are some really fantastic quotes that basically say Mm -hmm. as it's so bad to have to commit adultery with against your mortal husband that it's so much worse to commit adultery against jesus which any Christian woman, regardless of whether she's single, married, a nun, she is committing adultery against Jesus through having sex with a non-Christian. Oh my God. Jesus, you bitter cock. <laughs> but he also has like quite a harem, so I don't know where that leaves things. That if every bad. Christian woman in the world is, uh, is his wife. Jesus. No, I mean, <laughs> literally. literally. Jesus. Get in there. Okay, <clears throat> so we're moving on to the last section where we come up with, our second last section, where we come up with our own version of a movie which could be called The Little Hours that could or could not cover some of the same um, general topics as this one. So this is a section we call Fabula Nostra. And Sarah, <laughs> what even was that? But Sarah is going to go first this week because I'm reading about it now and it seems... Very interesting. And I haven't scandalized you and any of our Catholic listeners sufficiently. 
So, I want to make a movie about medieval, weird, kind of sexy devotional culture. So, I want to make a movie about a nun. Um, I'd like to, I'm going to have her named Katerina uh, in honor of Catherine of Siena, but uh, she's not going to be purely mm-hmm. Catherine of Siena. I'm going to be doing kind of an amalgam of uh, a number of kind of medieval devotional practices. Um, but her will be, she'll be sort of based somewhere in Italy, I think. And the movie is going to center on her visions of a very sexy buff Jesus. And, um, you know, have, I would say, you know, not explicit sex, but some like pretty racy scenes um, surrounding her experiences of her, you know, rather intense visions of Jesus Christ. Um, So I'm going to have Jennifer Lawrence playing Katerina, our nun who is super hot for Jesus. And Mm -hmm. I think Tom Hiddleston would make a solid sexy Jesus. I could, I could see that. I, could I was initially that. thinking Chris Hemsworth, but then I thought that was going too far in the direction of Buff Jesus. <laughs> Chris Hemsworth can be in every movie, um, but he would be, that would be an exceptional Buff <laughs> Jesus. It's like a little too Buff Jesus. He's also too blonde. Well, yeah, um, that's true. Yeah, but... So Tom Hiddleston mm. as sexy Buff Jesus. That's, that's, see, this seems a good cast. I would watch this. Now, how... Um, what what would you envisage happening in in the movie? I think it would be a kind of like artsy film. Um, uh, I think it would not necessarily have like the most clear and straightforward plot, but it would be kind of centered on a lot of her visions. Um, maybe she would also have a kind of male confessor that she's kind of relating some of her visions to, and which is often what was the case uh, that most of these women's visions were written down by male confessors. Um, uh, and so she'd maybe be talking to them and maybe they'd be, you know, not always entirely clear whether they thought that her visions and her experiences were within the bounds of orthodoxy or if they were worried that she was trending toward heresy or maybe even, you know, um, possessed by the devil. So there'd maybe be some conflict centered around that. Um, but that a lot of it would be about her personal and sexy relationship with Jesus Christ. I would. I genuinely think I'd watch that. If it doesn't get banned in Ireland, <laughs> I, it, I, nothing really gets banned anymore. Catholics don't have as much power. Wait, is blasphemy it. illegal yet? Is blasphemy legal yet? Yeah, it got signed off by uh, by the president, so I can blaspheme yes, all I, I want. I can come back to Ireland. Yeah, <laughs> sexy Jesus. So, what uh, what would your movie be? Okay, now. We're going to go on a slight journey here, Sarah. Um, I want to make a movie called The Little Hours. Mm-hmm. And in the movie The Little Hours, I want it to center on nuns. Mm-hmm. Right? But I kind of really like the name The Little Hours. But it also reminds me of the phrase The Wee Small Hours of the Morning, mm-hmm. referring to like 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning, right? And I was thinking what would nuns be doing at that time in the morning? The answer is, they'd be sleeping. But then what came into my head, or in your mind, they'd be sleeping with random men or buff Jesus. Or other nuns. Or other nuns. But then I was reminded of a movie during the week. And I'm going to wonder if you've ever seen The Craft, sir. I actually haven't. I know the premise of The Craft, but I haven't actually seen it. 
So I'm going to make a version of the craft, but centered on four mm. nuns, as opposed to centered on four teenage girls in the valley. In, I think they're in California. That sounds right. Since I've seen it. But my idea is that these four nuns are in a convent, and they're, they're newly made nuns. They haven't quite the thing. And they might even have been forced them to do it, similar to our nuns, mm-hmm. right? But rather than having one person driving it, I want them to be cloistered away in their rooms, and then all of them to suddenly start hearing voices mm-hmm. in the middle of the night. And it wakes them up, right? So they're wandering around trying to find out what's going on. But they're in a convent in the 1300s. But they're hearing voices, and the voices just whisper to them. And they're just hearing, which is not actually words, but it sounds scary because that's what they do in movies, mm-hmm. which is they just have people saying stuff in like that kind of voice over the top of them. And then they go down to the bottom of the convent into the basement and they discover that there's a pentagram on the ground. And then from there, they start experimenting with stuff. And they start putting candles on the points. They don't know why. It's like something's telling them in their mind. And they're effectively starting to take their own stand in almost like devil worship. I don't want to say it's Satanism. Mm -hmm. But let's just say that they're worshipping something that isn't God. And they're doing it in one of God's Mm -hmm. houses. And from there, it would be about how they effectively become priestesses Mm -hmm. in this new religion that they're doing but they have to hide in the background which is why they always do it at night time they always do it in the basement and that's why it's always called the little hours so it's about four nuns on a journey to become priests or priestesses of this new evil shall we say religion and that's what it's going to be like and it's going to star <clears throat> I think Kira Knightley could play the mother spirit mm-hmm. I think uh Emma Watson, mm-hmm. uh, shall we say, Saoirse Ronan, mm-hmm. um, Mila Kunis, and a random new girl. Uh, should be anybody, just a, a new actress so we can like bring yeah. her in and also keep the wage budget down. <laughs> um, because ev- everybody else I've mentioned, I think, has won an Oscar at some <laughs> right. point. So, uh, except, for, except for Shailene. Budget Budley. considerations. She's, Oscar. She's terrible. Budget considerations. And I think they're going to, to learn together to become the new priestess of new religion. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's what we think. That sounds really good. good. I would definitely watch that. Mm-hmm. So we now get to what I think is going to be the most contentious uh, <laughs> section of the thing, where we give our final scores out of five in the section I call Estimatio. <laughs> <laughs> I tried to make it sound like my voice was breaking, but I'm not sure if I work. <clears throat> So, Sarah, it's marked at a five. I think I'll go first go because it. I think if I let you go first, I'm going to sound like a contrarian, right? Now, for any of you who've listened to my other podcast and Best Acquaintances, uh, I am not generally a fan of comedies uh, because I find them to be pretty easy to see where they're going and I'm never shocked by anything. I can't say this movie didn't shock me with where the story went. But I also didn't enjoy it <laughs> well. Um, I think some of the performances were good. Um, I liked the fact that they were laughing and poking fun at Jesus. I think Fred Armisen was good. Um, I think I also have a slight dislike of John C. Riley. Mm. Um, I'm not sure why. So 
I can't give it anything more than a two out of Ooh. five. It, it's like not my cup of tea. It's not my type of movie. And I, I, I might have given it a higher score if not for the two scenes of basically sexual yeah. assault. In particular, the one against Kate Lacucci, which I genuinely left very uncomfortable with. But if it did lead to her smacking somebody in the head with a block of wood and then coming to the realization she likes girls. So it's unfortunate to happen. But yeah, so I'm going to give it a two out of five. Um, and I know, I know Sarah liked this a lot more than me. But um, yeah, Sarah, what was your score out of five for this movie? So I really like this movie. So first of all, I like comedies. I like a lot of the people in this movie, and I think they are really, really great comedic actors. Um, I mean, Aubrey Plaza is genuinely, I would say, one of my favorite actresses. Um, She's she's fantastic. I think she really hits this role perfectly. I think a lot of other people really do as well. And this really worked for me as a representation of the Middle Ages, that uh, it, you know, uses kind of deliberate anachronisms in terms of anachronistic languages. And as we talked about, there are obviously things that it didn't get quite right. But I think it really gets into some of the, you know, atmospheres that uh, some maybe laxer convents might have had, as well as some of the ways in which people thought about this kind of thing during the Middle Ages, that it really has a tone that feels very much like a modernization and update of Boccaccio's Decameron. And I thought that was really well done. So I do agree that it's not a perfect movie. Obviously, the sexual assault is hugely problematic. On the other hand, it's also really nice to have a movie that has multiple named female characters with real personalities. Um, That this movie actually, like, passes the Bechdel test, which not many of the movies that we have watched do. And it can pass the Bechdel test because, as I said, it has, you know, women who have actual personalities and whose distinct personalities contribute to the plot. And so I really appreciated that aspect of this movie. And so because of that, I'm actually going to give it a five out of five. I genuinely like this movie. I would watch it again. I, I can't. I just can't. I, <laughs> I, I think you're just I think scandalized Sarah, by it. I, you say I'm just scandalized. You know what? I think you're just so hell-bent on poking fun at Catholicism that you just saw sexy nuns having sex. Oh, my God. Which is Calvin? Oh, my God more sexy nuns having sex um oh love it this is the best thing ever let's laugh at those poor Catholics. <laughs> oh my god we got a jewish person even better best movie ever. but i will also say that <laughs> i think people often see the middle ages as this very kind of dour religious period when they do think about religion being taken seriously in the middle ages and that people don't realize just mm-hmm. how dirty medieval mm-hmm. humor was um <laughs> And that things like there's a medieval painting of a nun picking penises off a tree. Um, And I really like that there is a movie that acknowledges some (laughs) of like that weird stuff about like the Middle Ages and about basically raunchy medieval humor. I think it's cool to have uh, people have that kind of idea of the Middle Ages in their head, as well as this like everyone's just like mean and dour all the time. No, that's true. I'm going to throw shade your way forever about this but <laughs> at the same time everybody has different opinions on movies for example i watched um 
Den of Thieves, the Jared Butler movie. Um, I think it was either last night or the night before. And the person I was watching the way it was like, this is shit. And I was genuinely enraptured by everything that was happening on screen. <laughs> I was like, S- what are you, what are you, and look at it, it was my, my friend was saying, I was like, what are you even talking about? This is amazing. <laughs> They're like, can we change to something else? I was like, yeah, in 45 minutes when it's finished. Um, because, yeah, so different people are going to be, going to find different movies fun and enjoyable. And just because this horrible steaming piece of crap is something that you like, Sarah, it's not going to make me want to not talk to you. And I still want to talk to you and do this podcast with you, uh, even though maybe you don't have the best taste in medieval movies. (laughs) (laughs) Listen, I love Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. That's all that matters. Um, Sarah, we've come to the end of this episode, another episode, but uh, could you talk to our listeners and tell them where they can of find course. us. Of course. So you can find us uh, on iTunes where I would love for you to rate and review and subscribe. We are also available on Stitcher and Google Podcasts and a number of other podcatchers. Um, mm-hmm. If you would like to talk with us, um, I encourage you to first of all join our Facebook group. So if you search Media Evil on Facebook, you can find us. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at Media Evil Pod. And if you have any feedback or questions for us, we would love for you to send us an email, which is media.evilpod, that's M-E-D-I-A dot E-V-A-L-P-O-D at gmail.com. Yeah. Good. Now, one thing we could do is read out uh, reviews. So here's a five-star review from the Armchair Medievalist from November the 17th, 2018. It says, Braveheart, a blast says listen to the first effort of sarah and ollie on media evil with their take or perhaps takedown is a better word on braveheart got a good summary of the movie itself which i haven't seen for years and learned a lot about the context and the liberties taken in making the movie very good chemistry between the hosts not after this movie and simply a delight to listen to Looking forward to the next offering. Thank you, Armchair Medievalist. I'm not sure if we're going to do this every week. I just happen to have that on my phone when we were talking. So thank you for that review. And we'll see about maybe reading out any other five-star reviews. Absolutely. So yes, please rate, review, and subscribe. And you might be able to make an appearance on the podcast in the future. Yeah. Uh, If you want to get more of me you can find me at my other podcast it's called best acquaintances where myself and my best friend emily we talk to people that we only know from the internet so we give them a ring we uh we ask them questions about themselves they tell us their interesting and funny stories and you'll find that pretty much everybody is has something that they can talk about and it's a really good podcast it's where myself and sarah Mm -hmm. first met it's where uh it's where i met a lot of my my online friends really and um yeah it's nice so come and listen to best acquaintances it's a good time absolutely um and you can also if you want to hear more of me you can also find me on twitter or instagram at sarah if decker i recommend that you go to uh sarah's facebook and uh uh, Instagram stuff because she's always posting pictures of herself in hats. Sometimes there are hats, which is a good and thing. when there are not hats, there are a puckle of very very cute animals. I have a very cute dog and cat. So, yeah, she's got an alright dog. I mean, I've got a better dog, but yes, I mean, you know, you have a great dog. Magic. I don't want to throw shade at your dog. He might maybe he's the second best dog after my dog. He's the best. Be quiet, Decker. I, you can throw all the shade you want at my god, but do not throw it at my dog. 
And on that <laughs> note, we should say goodnight, Sarah. Oh, you too. And thank you all for listening. Bye. 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 I just waved at. Oh my <laughs> God. Um, goodbye, everybody. <laughs> goodbye, everyone. Thanks. <laughs>